Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I can present all of these facts until I'm blue in the face. And believe you, my face is, is turning blue again. And somebody out there can just type in whatever climate meme they want and pull up half a dozen things saying everything that guy said is complete rubbish. And you can do all of that, Mario, without ever even troubling yourself to open a book. Right now, all you need to do is to hop out your smartphone, type in something and voila, uh, everything that guy says is wrong because I've just become a 30 second expert in this. John Gibbons could certainly be forgiven for becoming a little bit weary in his fight to highlight the climate emergency that appears to be very much upon us right now. He's been researching, campaigning and consistently appearing in the media about this issue for over 20 years. And even though it's often a thankless job, his passion and resolve are stronger and more apparent than ever. John has been on this podcast before and previously he had been on the Sunday Roast on the radio with me very frequently. But with the extreme weather, wildfires and record temperatures we've witnessed over the last few months and the fact that this has been the hottest year in the history of recorded records, um, we thought it was a good time to have John back on the podcast to chat about all of this, what it all might have to do with climate change, where things stand now compared with 20 years ago and how he feels about it all right now. Think of it like a grand piano. You can, you know, very sensitive. We have taken a sledgehammer Mm. to the piano and we have smashed up this very sensitive system. And we're kind of wondering why the piano seems a little out of tune and why the sort of weather is a little off key. That's why we've broken it. We've broken the climate. I would have been one of those people looking askance at greenies and thinking, you know, these guys, I don't, you know, I was never a natural environmentalist at all. Mm. I'm looking at this purely objectively, not because I have some green ideology, quite the opposite, but rather that this is a life or death situation for millions and billions of people. Somebody is jimmying the algorithms and pushing this up. Now, I couldn't begin to imagine Mm. who would Mm. do such a thing or why they would. But clearly, the new owner of uh, Twitter has essentially bought, if you like, the world's largest electronic town square. And it appears that his intention is to burn that town square to the ground. And look, this episode isn't typical of the series in the sense that it's not a barrel of laughs. Uh, There's not that much mischief uh, between myself and John in our conversation because the conversation is frankly a little too grim and too sombre. And I strongly believe um, it needs to be out there more. It is out there quite a lot already, much more than it used to be. But increasingly, you're hearing comments from people going, ah, listen, not this climate change rubbish again. I'm getting bored with this. Or people going, oh, what's on this entertainment show tonight? They're going to talk about climate change. God, that's a barrel of laughs, isn't it? Um, I think it's self-explanatory, folks, and um, it's not every week I do this anyway, but I think it's important that we do do this. Now, it's not all serious, however, because I've got a brand new and exclusive comedy sketch for you, as always, on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. This week, we've managed to get access to, would you believe it, Patrick Keelty's voicemails. He's the man of the moment. He's going to be presenting his very first Late Late Show this week. We are well aware of the um, controversy surrounding the whole hullabaloo Balleri, as Andy Gabo would have said. And as you can imagine, Patrick Keelty's phone has been hopping. Hi, you've reached Paddy Keelty. Leave a message. Good luck. Patrick, Aforig, Mary Lou MacDonald, don't you? Cogordicus. Accord you uh, for kicking off this United Ireland project. 
Benedict Farah, we'll all be watching tonight. August Chucky, our late late. Garmil Margot. Yeah! <laughs> oh, Patrick, uh, recognise the voice? <laughs> yeah, I've left, uh, I've left a little note in the right-hand drawer uh, beside the desk uh, that'll let you know what you have to do um, about, you know... <laughs> Good luck! <laughs> You'll need it! <laughs> Hi, Patrick. It's Dermot Bannon here. Um, I left you a few messages earlier on. Just wondering if I am actually um, appearing tonight, if you could just confirm. I, just, I left a few messages, I think about 16 messages. Anyway, just normally I appear. Yeah, yeah, you know yourself. Just get back to me anyway. Thanks. thanks. Good luck. PK, it's the other PK, the one who succeeded gay and preceded the uh, banished one. Uh, you now join the veritable quartet of impresarios who've taken uh, the wheel, so to speak, the four musketeers, as it were. Good luck, good luck. D'Artagnan, out. Yeah, Patrick, uh, Bono here. Um, just wondering what motorcycles you might be interested in. Um, we do Harleys, Vespas, Yamahas, Suzukis, but, you know, loads of other bikes. Ugh. Just let me know. Cheers. Hi, Patrick. It's Mario Rosenstock here. Um, just giving you a quick courtesy call. I just wanted to start things off on the right footing. So basically, I go on the Late Late Show two or three times a year. Um, I used to go on. I'd do a Michael Flatley impression and uh, Ryan shat himself, uh, basically laughing. Uh, so that's what you have to do. Um, I'm probably going to do the same Flatley thing again, but just just fucking wet yourself or whatever if i throw in a roy Keane, just fall off the couch or something just it's just unbearable laughter crap you know and um, that's basically the deal look forward to working to you i thought we deleted that sorry i thought we deleted that last um that last one anyway listen best of luck to patrick keelty um and all that he does and i'm looking forward to watching it and listen one other point folks um the mario rosenstock podcast has just been nominated for the second year in a row for National Comedy Podcast of the Year. So delighted to be able to share that with you. So thank you um, for listening, as always, and getting in touch with me. It's um, giftgrubmario at gmail, sorry, giftgrubmario, at giftgrubmario on Twitter. And you can contact me at mariorosenstock at gmail.com if you want to personally contact me to do with anything to do with the podcast. Comedy, content, guests, uh, criticisms, constructive criticisms, or approbations, or um, or compliments—anything you want to do. Anyway, best of luck to Patrick. As I said, okay, let's cross over to my chat with John Gibbons. He's been trying to shine a light on the climate emergency now for over two decades, and I often wonder if he personally himself gets fed up, disillusioned, totally deflated. So we started right there. John, welcome along to the Mario Rosenstock podcast again. And you revisit us. Not many people we get to revisit us, um, but you are one of them. And for obvious reasons, because of your contribution to um, the climate, climate science um, debate. Um, so John has been on the podcast before. Previous to that, he used to come on the Sunday Roast on Today FM. And um, we did some long conversations um, on the climate. And since then, of course, you you do a really, really good slot on Matt Cooper um, every week, which has thankfully become a regular part of Matt's show that he bought, built into the show. So so thanks for um, coming on the show, John. Delighted to be here, Mario. I wanted to ask you to start off with a question that would people would normally end at the end, normally ask at the end of an interview. And I listen to you all the time talking about this, and sometimes this goes through my mind, especially when we reach a point like this year. And is it that personally, do you ever get disillusioned 
Um, Disillusion, sure. Uh, I think it goes a good deal deeper than that. I guess I've been wrestling with this bear, for want of a better way of putting it, for probably 20 years, uh, 15 of those years in the public domain. And disillusioned would be a mild way of putting it. Um, I think, and again, I'm there's a lot of climate communicators I put in the same basket, certainly a lot of climate scientists. Um, they're bordering on despair rather than disillusionment, quite frankly. Um, we've been shouting this from the rooftops. Take action, take action, hit the brakes. We've got to tur- change course. And in that time, nothing, well, actually, I won't say nothing has happened, Mario. Basically, the situation has got um, markedly worse in every measure, whether it's biodiversity measures, climate measures, emissions measures, you name it. Uh, the situation has, has deteriorated dramatically in the last, certainly, I'll say the 20 years that I'm kind of, say, wrestling with this, and specifically the 15 years that in the public space, um, every marker that I could name for you has deteriorated uh, at least as fast as I expected. And in many cases, probably, I think we're five, maybe seven years further on in this than I would have uh, predicted or expected by roundabout now. In other words, I think in 2023, we're where an awful lot of the science said we would be by the very early 2030s. And that's not a good thing. Mm. Before we go into all that, I want to stick with the personal slightly. I mean, do you ever get, you, so you said yes to disillusion. Do you ever get personally upset? I mean, do you ever, does, you know, because you're, you're exposed to so much of this data. So you're like that scientist in the movie who can see it happening next week. And they end up grabbing people by the collar in the movies and they go, you don't understand what's about to happen here. We're all going to die. And I wonder, do you ever feel... No, without being facetious, do you ever do you ever get in any way emotional, angry, or upset by that, or do you do do you, do you, do you withdraw? Um, I think so. I mean, I think earlier on in my earlier engagements, I probably did quite a lot and probably came to blows, at least metaphorical blows, with quite a, a number of people in, in, in debates. Not not similar to this, quite frankly, where maybe ten years ago it was very normal to be brought into a studio and be pitched up against a basically a straight, cold climate denier who would basically say that everything you say is completely wrong, there's no problem and everything you say is false. Now, that's pretty hard to take. I mean, obviously, there are people out there who who, who cling to that view, but they were being facilitated in the mainstream media. That, for me, that was the thing that made me angry. Not that there's there's people, you know, promoting falsehoods. I mean, there's always been people, uh, Mario, promoting falsehoods about all kinds of things. Right. So the denial, climate denial is the latest one and it's a big one. Do I get angry about it? Frankly, yes. And the reason I get angry about it is so much pain, so much suffering, so much needless suffering is already being experienced around the world because of this. And so much more suffering is in the pipeline. And a lot of this is avoidable, but only if we take action. And our ability to take action is compromised by the fact that there are voices, often voices with strong media access, who are basically contaminating the debate by spreading and repeating false information, false narratives about the climate emergency. And for me, this is deadly serious. My kids, your kids, everybody's kids, we're all on the line about this. And for people to deliberately 
mischievously spread false information. Yeah, personally, that's really, really hard to take. But having said that, uh, if you're going to talk to people about this, you, you can't shout at them. You've yeah. got you to reason with them. You've got to bring them along. And also to explain that you're there to talk about the science, to, to explain it as clearly as you can. And that requires placing your emotions, if you like, in a jar and going about this as, as cold-bloodedly as you like. It's a bit like a, you know, it's no use having a, you know, a squeamish surgeon. You've got to be uh, deliver this stone cold. OK. Since the last time we talked on this podcast, um, a number of interesting things have happened um, on pre things and we're going to get to those in a minute but from my personal point of view some things have happened as well my exposure to this debate and I wanted to share that with you so it comes through the um, platform of Twitter and social media in general. But I'll stick to Twitter. So since we last talked, something has happened to Twitter. It's been taken over by Elon Musk. Um, For those of you who don't know about Twitter, and I know you do, John, you're aware of that there'll be two things on Twitter. There'll be the people you're following, who's your feed, and that's the people who you you follow and you get the feed through. And then on the left-hand side of the screen, there's a thing called For You. And Twitter is now defaulting a lot to this platform called For You. And this is the stuff they want to feed you with that Twitter, based on your hits, your likes, your clicks, or maybe the data they've mined on you, this is what they want to feed you. And what I've noticed is that I am receiving a lot of what I might call climate sceptic material. And I can't help but link that with the owner of Twitter. Um, You know, underneath the parameters of his free speech auspices. You know, Trump is allowed back on. Elon um, and Tucker Carlson's allowed back on. In fact, Tucker Carlson with Trump is allowed back on. And I'm getting an awful lot of stuff, um, which reminds me of the last podcast that we had together. Stuff about the misinformation, you know, people saying, for example, um, it's the coldest Antarctic has ever been um, this year and all that sort of stuff. Do you, are you aware of what I'm saying? Uh, I very much so, Mario. And um, for example, I notice on on. Irish Twitter that the hashtag um, climate scam keeps trending mm. on Irish Twitter and you kind mm. of ask yourself how many people in Ireland could possibly be tweeting under the hashtag yeah. climate scam yeah, it's, not a, many. it's a really strange one which suggests to me that somebody is jimmying the algorithms yeah. and pushing this up now I couldn't begin to imagine mm. who would mm. do such a thing or why they would but clearly the new owner of uh, Twitter has essentially bought if you like the world's largest electronic town square and it appears that his intention is to burn that town square to the ground. Mm. That seems to be the plan that, uh, as you say, the, the so-called free speech absolutist uh, draws his limit when that free speech includes free speech that he doesn't agree with yeah. or that he disagrees with. Uh, and also uh, the, 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 the owner, Elon Musk, has been a chief purveyor of misinformation. Uh, he has boosted all manner of um, climate denial. Yeah. Uh, to take a random example, Jordan Peterson, the, the, yes. the basically quack psychologist from, from Canada, yeah. um, and he's the, and Peterson is a, is a huge climate denier, frequently boosted by Musk. I could name half a dozen more, but essentially the pattern is the same. He has decided, for whatever reason, uh, I presume because it aligns with his own personal ideology, uh, to attack science and to, more importantly, to give free reign to those voices. Uh, and for a guy who positioned himself as the the, the clean energy hero, uh, for example, his involvement with Tesla brought millions of people... and to say, gosh, here's an entrepreneur doing the right thing, you know, doing, doing, pushing us in the direction of clean energy. So I think an, all, an awful lot of people were misled. They thought he was on, on, on the side of the angels, let's say. And it turned out that, that uh, that's not the case, let's say. Okay. 
And some of the stuff you've seen maybe on, let's say, under climate scam, what's the what's the 2023 um, scams, climate scams du jour um, that they're thinking? And let's have a brief comment on them, John, if of course, I might yeah. from you. Yeah, my favourite one at the moment uh, is arson. In fact, I saw uh, one of the Sunday Independence uh, columnists explaining how the fact that there are wildfires all over the world, simultaneously in multiple continents, apparently there must be legions of arsonists going around the world setting fire to things. So the latest thing is because it's impossible to deny the reality of wildfires and the fact that they're occurring everywhere. On TV. This, this has created a great challenge for the climate deniers yes. because, gosh, we're watching the place go up in flames before our eyes. Yes. So how do we shift this narrative? And basically, the, the counter-narrative was developed by uh, Rupert Murdoch's media in Australia in 2020. You'll remember the massive wildfires in 2020 in Australia, uh, over a billion animals uh, killed in that. And what the Murdoch... Um, media did was they developed the arsonist narrative and they flooded the Australian media with the arsonist narrative and by the end of it the purpose of it was to just keep shouting arson, arson, arson to draw things away from the climate and this has been taken up again in 2023 and you see various right wing or centre right let's be polite commentators basically uh, when you say climate they shout arson. It's a great way of basically saying don't trust your lying eyes and the notion that there, there's this team of, of crack arsonists being jetted in to set fire to stuff. And who are they exactly? Are they some of the kind of crazy stuff you hear is that they're arsonists who are apparently green arsonists and they want to make things look worse so that their quote green agenda can be promoted by burning stuff down. And if you pause for a second to kind of consider the internal inconsistency in these arguments, but they've got nothing else. We're watching the world on fire. So let's come up with something. The best we can do is arson. Literally shout fire. Shout fire. Uh, Free speech. Yeah, yeah. And the purpose again is to delay and confuse and distract. And you see, Mario, let's be honest. There's an awful lot of people out there who really, really don't want this to be the case. Of course they don't, because if we accept it's the case, if we get our heads around the reality of the climate emergency, then we're going to have to accept, I guess, uh, a world with an awful lot of regulation. That's that's and what you're seeing here with the right wing attacks on climate science. It isn't an anti science thing. They understand the science perfectly well. It's regulation phobia. They're afraid, and rightly so, that if we take climate change seriously, then we're going to have to start regulating pollution. Mm. We're going to have to put a price on pollution, mm. whether that's carbon pollution through fossil fuels or whether it's methane pollution through agriculture. Once you charge a price for pollution, mm. then we begin to wrestle with this. However, the major polluters, the, the multi-billion and in some cases the trillion dollar industries like the fossil fuel industry, they are fighting like hell to make sure that we never understand this issue properly. Okay. Since the last time we spoke, um, obviously, you know, the last couple of years have been extraordinary, unprecedented things happening. Um, just so, for those of, for those of us now out there who it all seems to be a blur almost because it's one thing leads to another and then by the time one thing comes in one news cycle, you've forgotten about the last thing. But you haven't. So this year, for example, what are we seeing that's extraordinary? Let's summarise the events that we're seeing this year that we could categorise as uh, um, extraordinary, uh, unprecedented and perhaps leading towards uh, these tipping points that we talk about. Sure. I suppose the first thing to say is that um, July 2023 was the hottest month in Earth history, certainly in, on the on the instrumental record. That instrumental record goes back to about 1850, mm. but pr 
proxy records, Mario, suggest that July 2023 was the hottest year in about 125,000, sorry, the hottest month in about 125,000 years. So this is way, way outside of the realm of, well, you get hot months, you get cold mm, months. Yeah. And I think here in Ireland it's been a little bit different because obviously our weather has we've we've had quite a quite a damp cool summer uh, but a couple of things that stick out in my mind about it for example uh, July in Ireland while July in much of the northern hemisphere was the uh, hottest as ever experienced in Ireland we had the wettest July ever mm. recorded in Ireland in March 2023, we had the wettest March ever recorded. October 2022, the wettest October ever recorded. Mm. So that's in, what, the space of nine months. Mm-hmm. Three of those months have been the wettest ever recorded. Now, this is basic physics. As we heat the planet, mm-hmm. the carrying capacity of the atmosphere for moisture increases. So we've, incre- we've, we've increased the carrying capacity of the atmosphere by about between seven and maybe 9%. We've also changed precipitation patterns, which means that your typical traditional soft Irish rain, you'll notice we don't get so much of that anymore. What we get now are mini droughts like we had in June, Mm. followed by monsoon conditions Mm. where we've got high ambient temperatures and massive downpours. And we've seen flooding events here in Ireland this summer, not as extreme as we've seen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to go across the Northern Hemisphere, we've had uh, extreme weather events in Europe. We've had record temperatures in France, in Italy, in Spain, down into North Africa. Across okay, now just to be yeah. clear, they are record temperatures and they are to be worried about. Mm-hmm. And because again, the climate sceptics will go, wow, summer is hot mm-hmm. in Europe. Big deal. Yeah, but of course, the critical thing to say is these are the hottest summer temperatures that we've ever recorded. So, of course, every year summer comes around. And also, by the way, by the laws of of variability, every now and again, every every 20 years or something, we get thrown a hot summer or we get thrown a cold winter. What's happened here, if you like, is the climate dice have been loaded. So what we're now getting is more and more extreme weather. So, for example, 2021, we had record beating heat events right across the Northern Hemisphere. 2022, record heat across the Northern yeah. Hemisphere and 2023 worse again. And for me, what's extra worrying, Mario, about this is that we're not even in an El, an El Nino phase, mm. a weather phase, and we can probably talk about that yeah. uh, shortly. But the point is, this is against a background of when we should be having kind of normalish weather. What's happened essentially is the normal weather patterns are gone. Everything has shifted, if you like, in a, in from from the centre, the, the the if you like that part of the bell curve has everything has lurched to one side, mm. and therefore we're getting fewer cold weather events. They haven't disappeared, but fewer cold weather events and far far more serious weather events. And to to try and get one's head around this, I was reading an article the other day about. Um, A&E units in the US, I think it was in in Arizona, and they're bringing in people who've experienced severe burns from contact with the sidewalk, from falling over in the sidewalk Mm -hmm. and getting severe burns. One person was in in hospital for three months because the temperature of the asphalt on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. is heating up to, I think they said about 170 degrees Fahrenheit, Mm -hmm. which they said is just below the temperature of boiling water. So it's it's about 90 degrees uh, centigrade, wow. there and abouts. And people are getting severe burns simply from physical contact. Mm. There was one woman in a wheelchair and she was moving up a ramp. And when she tried to grab a metal um, mm. barrier to hold on to it, she got severe burns mm. because the metal had heated up mm. so much. She couldn't let go of the barrier because that the, the wheelchair would have rolled away. She's ended up with basically, I think it's third degree burns on her hand. Mm. 
This is how serious it's getting. And these type of temperatures, um, those type of stories simply never happened before. I mean, as old as I am, as old as, as you are, uh, think back. When did you ever hear stuff like this? Mm. I mean, we're moving into this other phase of, I guess, where our temperate climate systems are coming to an end very quickly, it seems, and probably more quickly than many people have expected. And we're moving into a phase, first of all, of very unstable. I think that, you know, when people say, you know, climate change and global warming, whatever, what I say is watch out for extreme weather events, extreme precipitation, extreme drought, extreme heat waves. These are the signatures of climate shift. And really what we're talking about here, Mario, is climate shift. We're moving away from the so-called uh, Holocene uh, conditions, which which was an incredible period of stability that has lasted about 10,000 years. But we humans have brought the Holocene to a juddering end mm. in the last maybe 20, 30, 50 years. That period of climate... Just as a matter of interest, yeah. John, before you continue, the Holocene period stability, do we have any idea of where that was heading? That's an interesting point, Mario, because obviously the all of, of what we call human history, right, which is the, 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 the when, you know, basically when we left the hunter-gatherer style, mm. all of that has happened in the last 10,000 years in this envelope of extremely stable weather. So stable, in fact, that over that 10,000 years, average globally, the temperature never increased or decreased by more than one degree, mm. you know, through this unbelievable stability. Now, the likelihood is that if humans hadn't been doing what we do with all this carbon, that we would possibly have been tilting back into a glacial period by mm. roundabout now. Or sometime over the last 12,000 years, we could have begun to, to slip back into a glaciation. Mm. So, in other words, we have what is now known as a super interglacial. So we've exited the glacial period and rather than bounding back into it, we've basically changed the conditions on Earth so that instead of, as I say, so moving slowly into a cooling phase again, we're instead moving into uh, what, what's known as a hothouse Earth phase. Mm. Now, these are very rare, at least rare in, in modern times. You, again, you're probably talking about going back uh, 125, 150,000 years before we had the last warm period. And we know also that these periods have been driven by very subtle shifts. Climatic shifts, maybe shifts in the Earth's tilt, mm. uh, maybe slight increase in solar output. And the thing is, a slight nudge in the climate system kind of begins to move it in a direction. So you get a couple of cooler winters and then you get cooler springs. And you get slightly cooler summer. And over time, maybe over hundreds of years, you can actually move in and out of glacial periods mm. through very subtle changes. Now, what that tells us is that the global climate system, despite being very large, is extraordinarily sensitive. Mm -hmm. Now, think of it like a, I don't know, like think of it like a grand piano. You can, you know, very sensitive. We have taken a sledgehammer mm. to the piano. Mm. With, with what we have done, particularly in the last 150, but specifically in the last 30, 40 years, we have taken a sledgehammer and we have smashed up this very sensitive system. And we're kind of wondering why the piano seems a little out of tune and why the sort of weather is a little off key. That's why we've broken it. We've okay. broken the climate. OK, so this year, as you say, extreme heat, last few years, extreme heat, heat waves. We've seen wildfires, OK, um, don't, not started by arsonists, but probably started by Oprah Winfrey, um, who obviously burned her own uh, island up in Maui, but except her own property, of course, I which thought was, it was untouched. Yeah, I thought it was space lasers, and apparently one of the one of <laughs> yeah. the great stories Mario doing the rounds was was the that 
did anybody notice that Barack Obama's uh, place didn't burn down? Yeah. Very suspicious. Wrong island? Wrong island. Yeah. yeah. But th- that kind of nonsense is flies around the internet and it is lapped up by willing, willing souls. Yeah. Wildfires, heat. Okay, let's look at the other stuff. I mean, I was aware of this, but this only um, through uh, theory or even maybe through talking to you. But it's happened this year. And this is the idea of marine heat waves. So talk to me about this marine heat wave. Yeah, well, first of all, marine heat waves, a lot of it has to do with the mixing of water at different levels yeah. in the oceans. Now, what, we, what we're seeing in, in more recent times, first of all, of course, the, the oceans are also heating up. We know, for example, that global warming has penetrated downwards into the ocean to a depth, recordable depth of 700 metres straight down. Mm. So in other words, we've heated up water 700 metres below mm. the surface of the sea. Now, if you ever jump into a, an unheated outdoor swimming pool on a scorching hot summer's day, the first thing you realise is, oh my God, it's really cold in here. Even though the pool might be only five feet deep, it is water is incredibly resistant to being heated, mm. even in, by direct sunshine mm. like that. So it takes ages for the sun to even heat up that five feet of water in a swimming pool. Mm. So it really begs the question, how much energy do you have to inject into the world's oceans mm. to have that heat penetrate down 700 uh, metres? The answer is, an awful lot. It's measured in something called zettajoules. And uh, sometimes these are translated, Mario, into uh, Hiroshima's, right? You may have heard the analogy where uh, we measure the amount of additional excess heat energy that humans are injecting into the system by converting them into a Hiroshima blast, right? right in energy. Mm. So we're currently adding uh, to the world's oceans seven Hiroshima blasts per second of heat energy being added to the world's oceans. Mm-hmm. So that's a short answer mm. to why are we having marine heat waves. We are pumping staggering amounts of additional energy into the world's oceans. Now, oceans heat slowly, but they retain that heat. The atmosphere heats quickly, but it can cool quickly. The oceans heat very slowly, but they retain the heat. And what we're doing essentially with the world's oceans at the moment is we're loading colossal, unimaginable amounts of energy into the world's oceans. That energy will express itself, for example, in more extreme um, hurricanes and other events. Now, Ireland has been remarkably, um, I suppose, sheltered from, from some of the more extreme climate events to date. But I would be very wary of people in Ireland feeling complacent about this because if you look west, you'll see th- that we're sitting in the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean, 40 million square kilometres of the Atlantic Ocean in 2023 have experienced officially a marine heat wave. That means there's huge amounts of energy building up in it. In some cases, up to five degrees above normal. That energy is the rocket fuel for hurricanes. Those hurricanes that used to be able to make it as far as Ireland. These are the ones that we watched slamming into Florida, slamming into the Caribbean. With the additional energy in the North Atlantic, we run the risk of being right in the, in the nose path of hurricane systems developing in the Atlantic and making it across to, across to Western Europe mm. because of all this colossal additional So this energy. is a direct effect possible for us. A direct, this is a direct In the eye of the hurricane. In the eye of the hurricane. Mm. And obviously, uh, we're also seeing and we'll see more and more extreme flooding events in Ireland. These are 
they're, they're compound events. First of all, the background sea level rise is continuing everywhere, right around the world. Global sea level rise is accelerating. Now, it's happening at the rate of millimetres per year, but they add up over a decade and so on. Uh, so we could be looking at, and we're probably going to be looking at, uh, maybe half a metre of sea level rise by 2050. Doesn't sound like a lot, but sea level rise basically allows extra penetration of storm surges. So let's say you're in a coastal area in Ireland and you've got half a metre of sea level rise and then a big storm comes in. One of those storms rolls in from the Atlantic. It's now rolling in on higher levels. It's penetrating our our first uh, defences and they're going to push further and further inland. So coastal flooding, estuary flooding, these are going to see more and more of this. We're also going to see more and more abandonment of low-lying coastal areas. We see this all over the world. For example, California and Florida, um, major insurance companies have said they're no longer insuring um, new new uh, businesses and new homes because they said they, they, the climate risks are so enormous, whether it's wildfires or flooding, that there there's now thousands and probably soon to be millions of homeowners who cannot get insurance. And we talk about tipping points, Mario. Mm. When the insurance industry mm. walks away mm. from domestic, uh, from insuring people's homes and businesses. The writing's on the wall, yeah. That's right. I mean, you you know, you, you take a scenario where let, let's just, um, we'll pick on, we'll pick on, uh, Sandy Mount, because it's a, an obvious example, a low-lying uh, coastal area. Very, Some of the most valuable real estate in Dublin is in Sandy Mount. Now, if the seawall in Sandy Mount is penetrated, uh, much of Sandy Mount all the way back into Balls Bridge is basically below sea level or at or below sea level. So if that wall is penetrated with a storm surge, like I've described, well, then you're looking at billions of euros uh, terrible misery for the people involved, but billions of euros of payout from the insurance insurance industry. And what they will do is they will pay out. This is apart from the companies that don't go bankrupt as a result, but they will never insure you again. So you'll have whole areas. The, the houses will be rebuilt. They'll be drained. They'll be tidied up. But basically, they'll never be insured again. So you'll have whole areas that will be, they won't be wholesale abandoned. Yeah, they won't be indemnified by the, the country they're living in. No, no. Yeah. I mean, you might say, well, the government will bail us out. Mm-hmm. And, and to some extent, say in the US, the US government has in fact been indemnifying people building in crazy coastal locations. But governments are not bottomless pits. Mm. And how many multi-billion dollar or euro climate disasters can a country bail, mm. bail itself out with before it stops insuring, before the insurance fund dries up. And these are one of the many, many sort of, I guess I would call those, if you like, social or, or economic tipping points, because we can often talk about climatic tipping points, but there are also societal tipping points, yeah. the points beyond which we simply can't recover. And instead, what we have to do is to retreat. Okay. Somewhat related to the, the marine heat wave. Um, and we might as well get to it now, is the El Nino phenomenon. Um, so tell us about El Nino. We know that there's, I think there's two competing phenomena. It's yeah. La Nina and right. El Nino. Yeah. And they vary. They kind of go like a pendulum. Yeah. They're either going through a La Nina phase or an El Nino phase. And the El Nino phase is is, is more dramatic. That's right. I mean, it's mostly, the, much of this happens, strangely enough, off, off the coast of Peru. And it has to do with the upwelling of ocean water and the exchange of temperature. Between it now, these are natural phenomena. Should should stress that, but what we know is, even though it originates in the southern hemisphere, it has global consequences. To give you an example, in 1998 we had a major El Nino event, and the, it led to the hottest year in the 20th century. It was 1998 by some distance. In fact, it continued to be the hottest year even into the early 2000s until it was mm. overtaken. Um, 
that was driven by this basically what what's happening is more energy is being transferred from the oceans into the atmosphere so we measure we measure if you like heating based on the heat in the atmosphere we don't really think about the ocean you know if i said to you it's you know 22 degrees centigrade today in dublin um you wouldn't say well what john what's the temperature in dublin bay right that's kind of something we leave to the marine specialists mm. because we live on land mm. right so and also we we measure our atmospheric temperature but what's happening with the el nino is we get a sudden shift where the sea basically releases a whole bunch of energy into the atmosphere that that so it's a whole heating system if you like mm. released into the atmosphere mm. heat released from the oceans upwelled as they call it and that basically the El Nino then is as that moves and works its way around the world mm. it is it affects the monsoon pattern to some extent but it's a natural phenomenon and what I guess we get really is that our current sort of turbocharged mm. climate systems when an El Nino comes along basically it makes everything worse now yeah. El Ninos are tricky at the best of times mm. right so um, the, it's from the Spanish I think the little boy right mm. and the reason it's called the little boy is it's like the little rascal because it's prob- mm. problematic. Mm. That's, that, that's why it's called the El Nino. Uh, it, it's a nuisance. Mm. Uh, but El Ninos are now becoming super dangerous because they're, as I say, they're riding in on top of a, if you like, an, uh, an already heated climate system. So we're expecting, for example, typically the El Nino peaks in December. Okay. And again, it's predominantly a Southern Hemisphere event, but it begins to express itself around the world. So I would expect the El Nino to impact temperatures in the northern hemisphere probably next spring next summer and oh yeah. yeah now I couldn't uh, so it know, expresses itself a year lag yeah, in there's a, a lag it's a lag it's a, it's a these are gigantic systems yeah, yeah. these are oceanic systems they're slow moving uh, but they are predictable and we have modelling on them and we have obviously we can study uh, previous El Nino so we've a good idea how they go and scientists for example were able to predict the arrival of this particular El Nino and it's interesting Mario because this one rode in off the back of three consecutive La Nina events which were effectively cooling events they were keeping a lid on global temperatures and that had scientists kind of baffled because they're saying hang on we're in a La Nina phase why is it so hot and you go well if you keep dumping 50,000 million tonnes of uh, Mm. powerful heat trapping gases into the atmosphere every single year guess what's going to happen Okay without calling your bluff or calling calling you I mean to be fair, it is you're saying to be fair and in all likelihood, we could be expecting the expression of this El Nino effect to happen sometime next year um, in a bad situ- in a bad outcome. What are we looking at? I think what we're looking at, if if this is how it expresses itself, again, there within the climate system, within our, our global climate, there is lots of variability. Very important to say that uh, weather systems are in incredibly variable. The climate signal is fairly predictable, but the weather rides along with huge amounts of variability. Somebody once described it like this. Imagine a you know a person walking their dog down the beach, right? Imagine you're looking at it from a distance and you watch the pattern of the person walking. You can track their direction, but the dog is scampering backwards and yeah. forwards on the leash. Yeah. That's the weather. Mm. But the weather tracks the climate, mm. but it does so erratically. Mm. Just to make that point uh, that people say, oh, it's just the weather. I mean, it is the weather, but the weather is a subset of yep. the climate system. So I think that's important to understand. So, all we can say is that we've we, by this time next year, Mario, there'll be another 50 billion tonnes of carbon in the atmosphere, 
right, on top of this. So that's going to ride in on top of all the trillion tonnes or two trillion tonnes we've already dumped into it. And of course, that's going to ride in on top of an El Nino. So if we're very lucky, uh, we'll have a we'll have a summer summer similar to 2023, which was a pretty horrible summer across much of the northern hemisphere. If we're not lucky, we will have a much worse summer than the summer of 2023. And you know that's what I mean. That that's where it leaves me cold uh, at just how fast this system is unraveling. Okay, what's uh, the next yeah. stage then? If if, if again to uh, again to to alert each other, to mm. alert ourselves as a community as a, a world to this sort of stuff what is the next stage I mean we kind of talked about it there marine mm. heat waves wildfires all mm. over the country you know the world record uh, temperatures beyond you know people not beyond beyond humans even being able to sustain yeah. living I mean we've talked about this before the idea that areas of Pakistan and India etc may get to regular uh, temperatures where which are not capable of sustaining human life yeah. it will have to ne- mean evacuation and everything. so what's the next stage here John mm. um you know, marine heat waves, wildfires all over the place. What's 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 a bad next year? Okay, a bad this year has been, for example, that um, fruit and vegetable production in southern Europe has mm. been hammered yeah. by high temperatures. A combination of extreme temperatures and, of course, drought. The two things that um, you don't want are drought and extreme temperatures mm. uh, in combination. Very, very dangerous. We've seen a reduction in agricultural output right across Europe as a result of this. Now, we're kind of getting away with it, Mario, at the moment because we're brilliant. Our global logistics system, we shunt food around the mm. globe. We, we somehow, if, you know, if the if crop fails in, in Spain or Morocco, we whiz it in from New Zealand. It's an incredible system. But that system has its limitations. And for me, the if you like, the, the thing that scares me the most, well, there's lots of things that scare me about what's going on, but the thing that scares me the most is a breakdown of the global food production and distribution system. I think that is a clear and near and present danger. Um, I think that system is highly stressed. We've seen, for example, countries beginning to hoard wheat. They don't want to export it because they're worried about their own um, domestic wheat stocks. So you see the so same... That's already an it's expre- already an, occurring. An, 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 this yep. is already an expression of their 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 real fears. Yeah. I mean, if you take, you know, major, say, rice exporters, right, like India, right? I mean, they're not going to export rice if they're experiencing mm. uh, food crisis domestically. They No government is going to, no government that wants to stay in power is going to, you know, Trevelyan style, ship the rice yeah. out while they're... And a large public. portion yeah. of the human population subsist and survive on rice. Absolutely. And, and this, again, contrary to... to uh, popular belief here in Ireland, uh, meat is in fact a relatively small part of the global diet. We subsist primarily on fruit and vegetables on a global scale. This is the eight billion people. Now there's a subset of a few hundred million people who eat vast amount of meat and with huge impacts on on, on climate and resources. But the vast majority of the human population subsists mm. on staples like rice and wheat and so on. And those staples are highly sensitive to um, heat waves and to drought. And Global food production then being a clear and present danger. In your mind's eye, when you lay your head down on a pillow and you see this and you think about global food production, what else do you see as uh, a thing that you don't want to see happening? 
Yeah, you, you touched on it a minute ago, Mario, um, and this again has been has been modelled uh, in scientific studies. And there was one study that I think you and I have talked about before. Uh, it, it certainly stays in the mind, and it hasn't been it hasn't been refuted. This was in twenty twenty, uh, a study that basically projected that by twenty fifty to twenty seventy, areas of the world currently inhabited by between one and three billion people will be uninhabitable for humans or animals and incapable of supporting crops in that period of time. Now, that to me is, that is an end game. That is an end game. That is an end game. And again, all they're saying, by the way, for that to happen is that we simply continue on our current pathways. Massive social and political. Uh, I mean, look at the pressure that Europe has experienced uh, from the migration of a couple of million yeah. uh, migrants fleeing yeah. fleeing for their lives out of uh, Africa, yeah. uh, migrants coming from, from Ukraine. Yeah. Now, multiply that by 10, multiply it by 100, multiply it by 1,000. Let's say you scale that up to a billion migrants. Now, this is going to have colossal mm. effects on our societies. Mm. And I worry very much that we could be at the dawn of an era of eco-fascism where governments essentially use the threat of mass migration to basically, uh, it's an end game I for democracy because suddenly it becomes it becomes eco-nationalism, if you want to call it yeah. that, where we pull, we pull up our borders, uh, the food, we hoard our food and suddenly food becomes another weapon. Water, we can see water wars breaking out where rivers, um, they don't really obey politics. Rivers go where they go. So you have a situation where a river is running through one country into another heat stress country. That country begins to divert more of the river flow. Mm. Those countries go to war. I would expect in the next two to three decades wars over water and wars over food. We're going back really into a, it's like we've sort of hit the reverse button on a lot of what we would have called human progress. It's like Mad Max, you know. I mean, it's the direction of of traffic and, and, you know, you take, for example, you know, a vast country like China um, supporting, what's it, 1.3 billion people. Um, I mean, they're only able to do that. They've exhausted and degraded much of their own natural resources and they can only sustain that house of cards by importing frantically energy resources from around the world. At some point that that sort of you know shell game of moving things around mm. and grabbing stuff it won't from over there it won't hold it will mm. fail. Okay. And and if I could make a mm, final yeah. point Mario on the whole food security thing and yes. this this is my 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 clarion call. I'm super worried about this little island, this food island of ours, being incapable of feeding its own population. That may come as a surprise to some people listening to us because we've been told by our politicians and anyone who listen that we're a major food exporter. We're not. We export very limited range of, of food, mostly beef and, live, and beef and dairy. Are you saying we're not self-sufficient? Not even remotely. No. 80 to 85% of all the fruit and vegetables eaten in Ireland, all the staples are imported. 85%. Right. So when it comes down to it, we can't, we can't. So we have a situation where our horticulture system in Ireland is the second smallest uh, acreage in the European Union. Horticulture, of course, is the system that is brilliant at feeding large numbers of people from small amounts of land. The other advantage of horticulture as the weather system begins to deteriorate and to become much more unstable is that horticulture happens mostly under glass. 
and the Dutch have done this incredibly well, where they can produce vast amounts of food, uh, almost eliminating pesticides, reducing uh, nitrogen use, reducing water use by having it in controlled environments under glass. They're light years ahead of us. In Ireland, it's just more beef, more dairy, more dairy, more beef. And what are we doing with it? Shoveling it abroad, trying to find somebody in China or the Middle East who'll buy these products. Okay, But we need to concentrate and first and foremost on being able to provide food security for our own island. And if that isn't, Mario, the purpose of a food system, I do not know what is. The thing is, these events have been coming at us so hard and so fast that no sooner do we kind of get our head around one than we're looking at the next one. And we're all suffering from a well, kind of a, a sort of a we're, we're spinning from the number of events. And and I think we can also, by the way, develop a weird kind of human thing. Humans are apparently only the rat in nature is is as adaptable as humans. Humans are brilliant at adapting to changing situations. Now, Unfortunately, the adaptation we're doing at the moment is precisely as you described with the frog in the in the in the pan. We're just shifting around in in the pan a little bit and going, oh, yeah, wasn't it always wasn't it always warm? Maybe if I take off more clothes, I can adjust to this. So rather than recognizing the changes around us around us, we're actually rapidly adapting psychologically to them. But the problem with that is physiologically, you can change your psychology. You can't change your physiology. And your physiology says that beyond a certain temperature, at beyond this thing called the wet bulb temperature, this is a combination of temperature and humidity. At 100% humidity, at between 28 and 34 degrees, humans die. That's right. Yeah. They die, by the way, sitting in the shade, drinking cold water. They die anyway, because their bodies can no longer shed excess heat. And they're the kind of mass fatality events that we're within a, we're within a, scintilla of Jumping the gun a little bit have you ever feared about the kind of the electrical grids in for example the continental United States of America failing Oh yeah I mean the electrical grid yeah the electrical grid Mario in in the US is an absolute patchwork it is and it's based on, rather than there being a national grid, yeah. there, there is no American ESB. No. There is no national grid. You have regional grids patched into other grids. Yeah, and it's even a throwback to the federal federalist and um, yep. the, the Civil War and everything. That's I mean, right. For example, Texas has its own grid. Yes, they didn't want a national grid. Yeah. They, they want our own grid. That's right. And you have local politicians and local governors, you know, playing politics with electricity. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, we, we've seen in, in Arizona this year. And of course, you have these sort of, if you'll pardon that phrase, perfect storms. So let's take, for example, the, the, the Midwest in the US, right? And Lake Mead is, uh, the, the levels in Lake Mead, which is the reservoir for that region, are plummeting. But Lake Mead also provides uh, electricity through the Hoover Dam. And that electricity runs the air conditioning units that make uh, cities like Arizona livable. So let's join the dots. As Lake Mead continues its precipitous decline, you reach a point where the hydroelectric stations fail, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and of course, on top of the, 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 the decline in Lake Mead, this isn't all, by the way, due to evaporation and so on. A lot of it has to do with over-extraction for livestock. They're, they're basically, the livestock sector and growing alfalfa for livestock has drained the Algala aquifer drastically across the northern US. And it is one of those weird things that effectively the the American Midwest is is 
much of it is just desert mm. and they grow cattle in it. How do you grow cattle in the desert? You do it through fossil water. These are draining 10,000 year old aquifers. And those aquifers, we didn't put them there and we're not refilling them. Mm. They were a once off thing that we just got lucky enough to be able to dig them up. Mm. As those aquifers drain out, as Lake Mead drains, um, the hydropower shuts down. Hydropower shuts down cities like Arizona, Las Vegas, they will be ghost towns, as they were, by the way, 100 years ago. OK. Uh, I want to finish by asking you something, just mainstream media mm. um, in this country. And uh, it's actually not not indirectly linked to just the Ryan Tuberty story. And for the record, I mean, I'm, I know Ryan and I'm friendly with him. And for what it's worth, I believe he was railroaded by RTE and I think he was unfairly treated and all that sort of stuff. And it's largely not his fault. Um, and uh, he's a fundamentally decent fella. But... Having said that, when it comes to climate and, you know, people like you um, who are trying to spread, um, you know, pro the, the proper information about this, factual information, you haven't found, for example, you never found the Late Late Show or even Ryan's, for example, nine o'clock show on, in, in the morning, that they never really, they never really touch these issues very much, do they? The Late Late Show or anything. No, I'm not blaming Ryan per se. I'm just saying he was representative of two of the main programs of uh, in Irish um in Irish media and unfortunately that it kind of left a lot to be desired in terms of coverage of climate didn't it that's right and and it is something that kind of puzzles me because i guess as it's a, not rock yeah. and roll is it yeah maybe maybe that's it it's, it's not it's yeah. not it's not fun yeah i think again as as a journalist you know i don't understand why more journalists aren't exercised and obsessed by this story. I'm exercised, I admit it, and obsessed by the climate story because it is the biggest, scariest story in my lifetime, in fact, in anybody's lifetime. And yet we have this complete disconnect. And and I'll come back to Ryan in a moment, but let me just give you a, a very brief detour. I was reading a review in The Independent the other day by their TV reviewer of RTE's new schedules. And he was remarking on all this kind of woke climate stuff. And he was saying how, what a turnoff it might be to have all this focus on climate because it's not for everybody. And you go, what? Are you serious, mate? You, do you think that? And he said, it's like, what is it? It is the new COVID or the new Ukraine. In other words, this year's thing we need to be seen to be interested in. Now, to me, that's pretty depressing. But it is not at all unusual. There are so many journalists, and many of them, by the way, in senior editorial positions who haven't a clue. In fact, I'd even go further. These are smart people, by the way. It isn't that they haven't a clue. It's that they've almost been inoculated by, I don't know, whether it's maybe they did economics degrees uh, or maybe there's a sort of a neoclassical training that makes them believe, first of all, that the market is indestructible. And second of all, that green stuff is only all shite. Uh, that hippies promote and that, that the hippies and the greenies are sort of antediluvian, anti-progress people and you need to trust the markets. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I would have probably fallen into that camp up until 20 years ago. I would have been one of those people looking askance at greenies and thinking, you know, these guys, I don't, you know, I was never a natural environmentalist at all. Mm. What kind of... What and in fact, you come from a farming background from a farming who are one background. of your biggest yeah. opponents. Precisely. Yeah, so I'm looking at this purely objectively, not because I have some green ideology, quite the opposite, but rather that this is a life or death situation for millions and 
billions of people. Did it ever occur to you to finish? Did it ever occur to you that the reason the media, uh, that part, that gentleman wrote that in, 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 is he's a member of the media. He deals in news stories. Mm. News stories are about turning over news stories and getting sick of old news stories. Sick of Ukraine, let's get it off the front page. Sick of COVID, let's get it off the front page. What do you got for me? Green, like it for a second. Sick of it. Let's move on. What have you got next? Uh, the climate is still here. Don't want it. Bored. Yeah. Isn't that it? I think I think there's a huge amount to it. I think the the, the climate sort of uh, story doesn't fit into the into the the, the, the sort of media mold. You're absolutely right. This sort of progressive story that just keeps getting worse, mm. you know. Weather is yeah. fun. Yeah. Climate isn't. That's right. And and saying, you know, it's going to be 40 degrees tomorrow. Wow, that's amazing. It's fun. That is fun. But tracking long-term uh, it's not trends fun. isn't fun. And also saying, by the way, that we've got to stop flying. Do you know what it reminds me yeah. of? Because I keep talking about these themes on this podcast. It reminds me of the housing crisis. Mm. The economist Chris Johns came on this and he said, one of the things that people don't understand is how deeply complicated uh, these problems are. And it's people who try to say, I've got a quick fix for this that they're going down the wrong direction. It's our intolerance as a human society to want to embrace difficult problems. We're not prepared for it anymore. We don't want it. We want quick answers. We don't want to accept, listen, I'm giving you a problem. It's not going to be easy and it's going to take a while. Can you concentrate and get it done? I mean, it's almost a microcosm of the child that we have at home. Their, their, their focus is gone. You know, my focus is gone, for God's sake, looking at things, you know, we're, we're deteriorating our focus. We can't concentrate on problems. And these housing crisis, climate, these are complicated problems that take patience. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think as well, it's probably a really terrible time in human history for us to be all kind of digitally distracted. And and and, and also the other issue with the social media thing is that, you know, I can present, you know, all of these facts until I'm blue in the face. And believe you, my face is, is turning blue again. And somebody out there can just type in whatever climate meme they want and pull up half a dozen things saying everything that guy said is complete rubbish. And you don't you can do all of that, Mario, without ever even troubling yourself to open a book. Right. Once upon a time, if you wanted to know something about something, you had to read. You had to go to a library. You had to inform yourself. Now all you need to do is to hop out your smartphone, type in something and voila, uh, everything that guy says is wrong because I've just become a 30 second expert in this. It is a long difficult process to get to understand it. But to me, the key fundamentals are and remain very, very clear. I think, you know, and this for me, again, remains the the mystery, the sorrowful mystery that that folks like Ryan, uh, you know, media people, they don't like the story. I think you, you've put it very well in saying that it doesn't fit the mould. It's, you know, it's sort of like maybe it's like cheese. You know, it's just there all the time and it's getting mouldier. In fact, yeah, see, what happens is all programmes are made in rooms like this. Yeah. And they're made with clever people who sit around tables, boys and girls, mm. and they go, what have you got? And they go... I've got a guy who might be very, might be a good item about the climate. You just hear the groans going around the table. I've been in the room. Jesus yeah. yeah, no climate, not that one Jesus again. Jesus Christ! But you're, hang can on. We get, yeah. Should we get somebody else? I mean, yeah. can we get McGregor maybe? Exactly. But also, Mario, didn't we do that climate story a couple of years ago? That's I mean, done now. I mean, sure, we've done the climate story, and didn't we do that that Antarctic thing? Sure, we yeah, not sure, again. Not. I mean, come on now. What's new, right? Yeah. You know, and and this is a problem. It's I, they call it sort of climate fatigue, where people feel like they've done it and they want to move on. And I think that that represents an incredible challenge but it just means media the way we've organized it that 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 you know basically if the mold doesn't fit the story 
at the moment we change the story. What we need to do is we need to change the mold. And that's the difference. We This story isn't going away. We have to change how we approach it. And that isn't just a media mold, by the way. We need to change our political mold on how they address it as well. Because, I mean, let's be honest. Let, let's look at what's happening to the probably the only party in Ireland that is sort of, if you like, campaigns on climate, uh, the Green Party. They're about 3%. So where's all the climate anxiety? Where you know how are we turning the, our anxiety, our concern? You know people aren't even voting around this, which to me is incredible. And by the way, you don't have to vote green, but certainly vote you know sock Dems or somebody who's remotely interested in climate. Uh, and at the moment, uh, the the parties that you could reasonably say uh, you know have climate as a centre plank of their policy in Ireland I doubt very much that they get more combined get more than 10% of the vote and that suggests that somewhere along the way we in the media uh, were failing to communicate this the political classes are failing to grasp it uh, and as a result the public thinks that they can sit this one out now to me that's a that's a fatal misunderstanding Okay John uh, listen thanks for coming in again thanks great to talk to you and thanks a million for not losing your head completely in today's um, discussion. Thank you, Mario. And there it is. My thanks, of course, to John Gibbons for sharing his time with me and being so articulate and eloquent and uh, indeed patient. I don't know how he does it sometimes. Um, you can get in touch with me at Mario on Twitter or MarioRosenstock at gmail.com um, on DL email. Um, my thanks of course always to you for listening tell one person if you can that you enjoyed this podcast and ask them to subscribe or please subscribe yourself if you haven't done already we're on Apple Spotify and our host platform is Go Loud thanks a million see you same time same place next week